Hello to all of you. This is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For any of you that have never heard any of my messages, I want to explain how I will be sharing this message very briefly. There's a scripture in 1 Peter chapter 4 that says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. I will seek to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through me the words that are from God. In other words, I will seek to speak this message out of the Spirit of God prophetically. That is what we are always to seek to do when we are ministering to one another, is to minister in the Holy Spirit, which is basically to minister in the spirit of prophecy. So I do not prepare my messages. Yes, I do meditation for about a half an hour each day on a particular chapter, and I make brief notes within that half hour. And it's been a while since I spoke last. Um, I last spoke in November, somewhere around just before the middle of November. Things will become more frequent as time goes on, and I begin to complete some of the projects I have on the internet in order to have the financial resources to do what I'm wanting to do. But what I am sharing here, I am sharing from the last three or more weeks. And I'm just going to particularly zero in on a few passages I took notes on that I believe will be important uh, passages of scripture. And I believe the theme passage this time will be Zechariah chapter 13. I may touch on some of the other passages that I have received in the last few weeks as well. And so I pray that each of you that are listening to this message, that you will be thirsty for reality, for what only really satisfies. For you were created to find ultimate meaning and purpose in your Creator. In fact, the Word of God says in Revelations chapter 4 towards the end that He is worthy because all things were created for His pleasure. There's a song that we often sing, Thou art worthy, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And every one of us human beings, God created for a purpose. And that was that we would find a relationship with God. That we would be reconciled to God and fulfill the purpose for which he created us. We find our ultimate pleasure, our ultimate fulfillment that is lasting, that is without end, only in fellowship with the Creator, in worshiping the Creator in every aspect of our lives. Through what we do and say, what we ponder on, our thoughts, and so on. And God is wanting you to know 
what it is to enter into a full relationship with him that brings you into wholeness so that the whole that is in you that was only made to be filled with God that hole may be like a black hole in outer space right now that is pulling everything in in a destructive way because one is seeking an independence from God to find fulfillment in the things of this world that are merely temporal but they only leave you feeling more empty so that you are more desperate to grasp after more and so there is this destructive self-grasping principle because we are cut off from the presence of God if we have not repented and received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I want to share what God has been giving by His Spirit to me from the Word of God. And one of the passages, as I mentioned, will be Zechariah 13, which we will read. And I may touch on some of the other passages before I read Zechariah 13 that I also received in this time. There was Hosea chapter 14 that I received on December the 5th. And I have my notes on this and it's basically on being in a backslidden state from God and how to turn ourselves around to be in the opposite, in a deep and vital, fulfilling relationship of communion with God. And I want to touch on this passage later on as well. And I, I believe that's all I'm going to mention right now, so let's... Um, Go first of all to Zechariah 13, which is a very mysterious passage. Most people would not understand this passage, but I am going to unveil it. And it is a very prophetic chapter. In fact, the book of Zechariah has a lot of significant prophecies in it, especially towards the end, and this is one of those chapters towards the end. And we read, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed every one of his vision. When he hath prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. And he shall say, I am no prophet, I am an husbandman. For man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. 
and one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and I will try them as gold is tried, and they shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. having a little bit of drink of water. I always tend to have a few zips of water at the first part of my messages, I notice. I just want to worship the Lord right now and be in the spirit that I might speak out of the spirit of God, what he would be saying to you as an individual and to the corporate body of Christ around the world for this time. Father, I thank you that your word will prevail. And may it have free course in me and in your people. And may we enter in to the relationship that is complete and full that you desire us to enter into. It says here in verse 1, In that day there shall be a thumb open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Does this mean it's only open to those that dwell in Jerusalem and to the special lineage of David that has been retraced through the modern abilities of genetics? Now that is happening. They are retracing a lot of the lineage in Israel, including finding out who are the real priests that should be serving in the temple. And in fact, in re relation to tracing the lineage, I happened to see a YouTube video, which was quite amazing, which you can probably find on the internet. I don't know the exact title of it right now, but it was a prof prophecy given by a musician and I, I, I know his last name is Clement. I forget what his first name is. I think it was Kim Clement. And this prophecy was given in 2007. And it was a detailed prophecy about Donald Trump becoming president and exactly how that would come and how he would enter into office and what would happen when he was president. Basically a prophecy for the next eight years, very detailed and has been filled very accurately. It's amazing to watch this prophecy. But in part of this tape, because it's not just covering his prophecy of prophecy of Kim Clement, they are also talking about the Jewish Orthodox Jews, most likely Orthodox Jews, it could be conservative Jews as well, uh, in Israel. And how 
there are those that genuinely believe that Donald Trump is the, heart, the one that is the forerunner to their Messiah. Now their concept of the Messiah is probably different than of course our understanding because we have come to recognize the, all the scriptures that foretell so clearly in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Nevertheless, they have been tracing the lineage of Trump and they have apparently finding, and I wouldn't say this for sure, but what I saw in the video from this gentleman that was talking, that they have been finding that his lineage is coming right into the nation of Israel and seems to be zeroing towards Elsie David, and I suppose they're still doing genetic work on that to verify whether that is indeed the case. And so there is some interesting things happening in our time. And may we all be in the place with God where we can, out of worship like this musician, enter into worshiping God so that we speak as the oracles of God. It doesn't mean that when I'm preaching the message here that everything will be completely from God, but it is in great measure the case when we seek to speak out of the Spirit of God, out of a conscious state of worship as it commands, as for example, the Apostle John, who fell prostrate at the angel in Revelations chapter 19. And the angel commands him, when he falls prostrate before him, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and not thy bread on the prophets. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is out of worshiping God that we testify of Christ, and out of that, and that happens out of the Spirit of God that comes through us in speech, out of our worship towards God. So it's the spirit of prophecy that testifies of the reality of the Messiah. And in this passage here, in the last days, the very last days, when the Lord returns to the earth, there is a fountain open to the house of David, which doesn't just represent the lineage of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, but represents all those in the nation of Israel that have come into an intimate relationship with God and also the Gentiles around the world. This fountain speaks of cleansing. In fact, if you look at the meaning of the Greek word of this word fountain, it is a Hebrew word which basically means spring. It means fountain. And it is figuratively symbolic in various passages of Scripture of purification and of the source of life and of vigor. And there are various passages that indicate this, such as Ezekiel 13.1 and Hosea 13.15, Jeremiah 51.36, and so on and so forth. And I won't go into that. It's also figurative of the eye. The day will come when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will open a fountain of his cleansing blood and of his Holy Spirit in the Word of God as flowing water that will cleanse away all sin and uncleanness 
uncleanness from those who repent and receive of his atoning work. And we know in the previous chapter here in Zechariah that it describes this in more detail as the Lord returns to the earth. And we can read in this passage here various things that will take place. And so I am skimming into chapter 12 right now, if I have this right. And we go to verse 9, and it says, And it shall come to pass on that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Take note of the fact that when it says me, it is referring to God. It says, I will pour upon us of David. The spirit of grace and supplications, we know that is only God, Elohim, the Almighty's one. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. Me is referring to God. Yes, they will look upon God, whom they have pierced. Jesus Christ is not merely man. He himself said, I am that I am, referring to the Hebrew word for God, which in Hebrew is Ahilya Asher Ahilya. I am that I am, which is another way of referencing the word Yahweh or Yehovah, which is referring to the one that is the ultimate source of reality and life itself. And I'm not here to get into describing all the characteristics of God, though I've written in depth on the fear of God and particularly in relation to the character of God, a very in-depth book on it, which is not finished yet. But I forbear to share about all of those things. The Almighty's One is God in three personages. And if God was not in three personages, he would not be Almighty. Because God must be able to rule in the three ultimate dimensions of existence, which are beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. God as the Father is known to be in government beyond the time and space realm. Seeing the end from the beginning, whenever the Apostle Paul and the others are referring to God as the Father, they refer to him as the one that sees the end from the beginning and often mention something that indicates basically that. The word Father itself means basically this, origin, the origin, the source of all. He is the father of all spirits. By all, it says that all of the names that have been given to all created beings have their source in the Father. Well, names doesn't just mean literal words. The understanding of name is the understanding of the very essence of one's being as it is expressed in, in who it really is to whoever it is being expressed to. That's the understanding of the word name. And so we have 
God in personage being able to rule beyond time and space as the Father, in time and space as the Son. The Son, the word Son is, has, is basically a word that means expression. The Son is the full expression of the Father in the very quality of his being and essence of the being of God into the time and space realm to rule in that realm. And if God could not be in personage beyond time and space and conscious intelligence beyond time and space and over it, he would not be God. And if God could not at the same time or simultaneously be in the time and space realm in personage and intelligence, he could not be God over the time and space realm. And if God could not be in personage in omnipresence, in omniscience in all places at the same time with the ability to be totally creative and appear in personages in millions of places and unlimited number of places at the same time, he would not be God. So he is God as the Holy Spirit filling all space of all dimensions. And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit can be referred to as Elohim, the Almighty's One. The word Elohim in Hebrew basically has the understanding of the all-powerful one in plurality. And so there is only one God. And it says here in this passage of Scripture that they shall look upon him whom, no, not him, me, it's referring to Elohim, whom they have pierced. In particular, referring to Elohim in the Son, Jesus Christ, who was pierced for us. God's love is so great. The one that created the myriads of stars, and we know how vast the universe is with modern science. Light travels around the world seven times in one second. To get to the nearest star takes five years at that speed. And there are stars that are many times larger than the sun, some thousands. Maybe a thousand, I don't know exactly, but at least a thousand times. Our sun is a thousand times larger than the earth. And here we are in this vast universe where man cannot even get anywhere near the closest star with a spaceship five light years away. And in one galaxy, which is our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, you have literally millions upon millions and millions of stars. Basically, most galaxies have around a billion stars or more. And I suppose ours does. I don't know. I've never found out what the number is exactly. Now they know there's billions of galaxies, and all of these galaxies, I mean, for light to travel across one galaxy would take hundreds of years. But there are billions of galaxies. In fact, there are more stars than there are sand grains in the world, on all the oceans, in all the oceans. It is unlimited. It is unfathomable. And here is the Creator. He humbles himself more than you, a mere creature. And he suffers more than you, a mere creature, so that you can be reconciled to God and have a right relationship with him. There is no love that is more incredible than this, that he has described here in this passage in Zechariah chapter 10, uh, pardon me, chapter 12, verse 10. 
it says, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. This is yet to be fulfilled. This is when the nation of Israel as a nation is born again, is converted, is reconciled to their creator and recognizes that he is indeed the Messiah that they have been looking for when he returns to the earth. So we go back to Zechariah chapter 13 here and we see that this fountain is representative of the very life source of the universe. It's representative of the blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out for cleansing. It's representative of the Spirit of God that then can come forth when we are cleansed of our sin and forgiven as living water and cleanses of the very state of our being that is at enmity with God so that it is changed into a new creation by the Word of God, which is the expression of God's being in communication towards us who have been redeemed. It flows as water that takes away the uncleanness that is in our very being that causes a disposition that is at enmity with God and with others. So that when we recognize the greatness of God's mercy towards us and are amazed that he could forgive us for all the terrible things that we have done, we find it easy to show mercy and forgiveness to our enemies. Knowing that we were at one time, in many cases, far worse than our enemies and what they have done towards us. The very ones that pierce Christ will look upon him whom they have pierced as a nation. Now, there are many in Israel that loved Christ when he was here on the earth and were converted. I'm not saying that except that as a nation with the authority that was represented in the scribes and the Pharisees and the ruling class at that time, they did pierce him. And in this passage of scripture, we have a wonderful thing to look forward to, a time when right in Jerusalem itself, there will be a place where people can go and they can know the presence of God flowing as a fountain to cleanse from all sin, flowing as a fountain of love. It is out of love that flows the blood of the Messiah that was poured out on the cross to cleanse you. It is out of love that flows the living Spirit of God to dwell with you and by that dwelling with your spirit, once you're forgiven and cleansed, change the very disposition that is contrary to the ways of life that are everlasting and ever enlarging in realms of greater and greater fulfillment of creativity. We continue to read in this passage. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land.
there are idols, modern idols, throughout the world and certainly in the land of Israel today. What are these idols? They're not necessary. In most cases, they're not some stone image that people are worshipping nowadays. But they are just as very much idols. The idols are the gods of pleasure, of immorality, of sexual perversion. The idols are the gods of amusement and of idleness. They are the gods of materialism. People are living for these things. They are the things that they live for. Just temporal things that never can satisfy. The inner core of one's being. They aren't real. They are a lying vanity. In fact, <clears throat> there's a verse in Jonah. Jonah cries out in the belly of the whale, the great whale, and by the way, that's not just a fairy tale. There has been many accounts, uh, historical accounts, actual accounts of people being swallowed by whales, and later on the whale is caught, and that person is still alive in the whale. This is a, a known fact. It's not a fairy tale that people can be swallowed by a large whale and live for some time in the whale, and that was the case with Jonah. And when he was in this whale, he cried out, and he said, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. And that was his experience, because God had commanded him to go to the ungodly city of Nineveh and to, come to tell them that if they did not repent in 40 days, they would perish. And he didn't want to do it because he felt they deserved the judgment of God. And he fled because he desired the lying vanities of pleasure that were in some place in Tarshish where he could take it easy and have a good time. And so he fled from the presence of God. And we know the story that he admitted that the reason the storm was there and prevailing on the ship to the sailors was because of him. And that as much as... Because he had disobeyed God, he deserved to be thrown out of the ship so that that storm would cease, and it ceased. And he was swallowed by that whale and experienced the terrible torment of being inside the whale, with weeds being thrown around him and it being hard to breathe. And was vomited upon the land and then went through into Nineveh, preaching it. And Nineveh, from the king to the people that were the very basis, when they heard the message of Jonah, as he preached in this large city to a city that was a very powerful city that had pillaged Israel and many other nations because of its military might. They went, the king commanded everyone, including the animals and everyone, to go into a fast that I believe was for three days without food and without liquid. And they cried mightily on to God in repentance, and God had turned his and judgment away from that land. And it wasn't until a long time later that we find in the scripture, Nahum goes to that same city and warns them, and they resist this time, and they are destroyed, just as he prophesied they would be, the prophet Nahum. Now, that seems like I sprung out of the context, but I, I believe it's really in context here. Because we are talking about, in this verse, the unclean spirit passing out of the land. 
And why is that unclean spirit there? Well, we were talking about idols. There's idols that everyone is in bondage to. Idols in the land. There are many believers that are even born again and some that aren't or think they're born again and they don't even realize that they are they have an idolatrous mindset and heart set where they are creating their own image of God that is contrary to who God really is in order to justify a life that can justify these idols. And so we have here in this passage the prophets that moved out of an unclean spirit to prophesy words that would allow people to justify their bondage to the idols of materialism. There's a scripture in Ezekiel that says that the sin of Sodom was pride, abundance of bread, and idleness. Pride, abundance of bread, and idleness. If there is one thing that God hates, it is pride. It is very clear in Proverbs. It says the first thing that he hates out of a list of seven things is pride. A state of self-worship, of self-glory that can be justified by fulfilling those things that we believe please God by mere performance. This was the sin of Cain. In his heart, he became in measure alienated from God because he was offended at the holiness of God, the consequences of God's holiness. Now, the holiness of God is the integrity of God's love. But what is the love of God? It is the agape love, the highest form of love, which is a love that is beyond feeling, that makes choices that are to the highest lasting good above choosing any more immediate fulfillment of choice or gratification of choice. Always choosing the highest lasting good. God's being has integrity in his love. A love that always chooses the highest lasting good onto the ultimate good which is God himself for which all things were created. This love is innate in its quality of integrity as a blazing fire to consume all that is contrary to love. This love that always chooses the highest lasting good. It does not tolerate corruption. The being of God is a state of being that is the very opposite of corruption. It is anti-corrupt. And that state of being is a love that is so pure that it will not tolerate what is contrary to love, which always contains corruption. And this love of God will not tolerate those things that are opposed to his love in our lives that we justify by deceiving ourselves in mere performance like Cain. Cain was offended at the consequences of the curse. And a lot of people can become offended at what God allows in their lives to try and to test them. Or because of the consequences of things that have happened in former generations. It's from Adam that has reverberated through the whole human race. 
the consequences of their fall. Because we all were in Adam, because we all came out of Adam, who and his wife disobeyed God. And so we were cut off from the presence of God, and there is this natural tendency in our state of being, because we are cut off from God, we cannot worship God, for we don't find communion or fulfillment in God, and we worship our own soul or our own consciousness, which is a state of self-worship. And this manifests itself in performance, in offense that creates an image of God that is like a, that is demanding and demands submission that is holy, but it's not the, the holiness that recognizes the goodness of God. It is a recognition that God just requires performance in order to be accepted and, and accepted by him which is a wrong concept of God. God is holy or has integrity in his love because that brings wholeness. Because when there's no corruption, there's wholeness. And it's in wholeness that comes forth true beauty, true freedom and creativity. And so behind the holiness of God is ultimate goodness. For it is only in the holiness of God that there can be contained unlimited light and unlimited power without corruption. Which means that unlimited life and power can go on without ever being dissipated or being corrupted by the holder thereof. And so God requires judgment. But when we see all the suffering in this world and in our own lives because of disobedience, we can easily begin to be offended at the Creator, and that distorts our view of God that becomes an idol in our heart, where we project in our imagination an image of God that either is a tyrant, which is the image of God that Cain began to develop, that demanded submission, or we develop a view of God where his love has no integrity, and he therefore accepts immorality. Both views of God are the two views that have resulted in all the religions that have come from the time of Adam and Eve on the earth. For example, there was all the archaeological evidence, and you can look at this from a secular, well-known, renowned archaeologist by the name of David Roll, if I'm pronouncing his last name right. And he discovered Evidence from the first city after the flood, Arudu, which has been dug up. Evidence that that first city after the flood was known to be the city before the flood that was the city of Cain, which was became an idolatrous city. And he has found evidence that points to the fact from what he has shown. Some pretty interesting evidence. Referring that shows that they knew that that was the city of Cain. And it's from that city that Nimrod came. And Nimrod was, uh, at that time, there were giants, and Nimrod was exceptionally large. He was 17 feet tall. And there's all the evidence in the archaeology for this. You can take a look at it yourself. David Roll is not just any old archaeologist. He's a renowned archaeologist, and he doesn't claim to be a Christian either. He claims not to be a Christian. But we know that 
Nimrod was in the city of Arudo, and then he went to start the Ur of Chaldeas up. And from that city, there he built walls that were 80 feet high, 70 feet wide, that went for many miles. I believe it was two miles or more, and formed this enormous city. These walls glowed with a metallic finish. At that time, they were a very sophisticated civilization. And Nimrod, according to Josephus, made the statement that he would take vengeance on God because of the flood. And he developed a system of worship that was like Cain, where there was a God that was demanding and demanded submission. And it was from this, and it was called the moon God. It was basically represented with the moon. And this now then migrates later on in time to the Babylonian civilization. And from the Babylonian civilization, this moon god religion migrates to Arabia, where you have Mecca and you have all of these idols before Mohammed came. And the top idol was known, it was called Allah, meaning the god. And the god referred to the moon god. This is the same god, a god that demands submission and does not show mercy or provide assurance of forgiveness. Now, how can God be perfect if he creates creatures or creates anything and cannot provide ultimate meaning and purpose? It would imply that he is less than perfect. No, God has a plan, and it is a plan that is imperfect, that is perfect, and that has ultimate destiny and meaning that you can choose to enter into, but it is upon condition of receiving the mercy of God, of recognizing our guilt instead of being like Cain and others that became alienated so that God became like an enigma and eventually they formed their own image of God. And, and, and all they know is performance to be pleasing of God, but then you're glorying in your own self-sufficiency instead of in God. You're in a deceived state of self-worship. That's what self-righteousness is. Because whatever you trust is where you're putting your glory and your worth and your worship. So if you're trusting in your performance, then you're worshiping yourselves because that's where you're putting your trust to be accepted before God and not in God. And God is calling us and his people to repent of failing to re receive God for who he is. The, you know what the fear of God is? The fear of God is a choice to recognize God in reality for who he really is. The I am that I am. And who is he? In reality, he is a God whose love is so pure and so strong that it will not tolerate corruption in you and demands judgment upon in, in every person that goes against God, that refuses to receive who he is. He's provided a way of mercy. It is because of the foundation of God's holiness that there springs creativity without end. And that's ultimately manifested in the fact that he, God himself, is the only one that could possibly be a perfect atoning sacrifice for your sin and the sin of all mankind. Because no one could be a perfect human being. And it would require a perfect human being that was tempted like we are without sin. And the only one that fulfilled that was Jesus Christ. He, it says in God's word, was tempted in all points as we are without sin. And through his obedience, as it were, he took the first man, Adam, and carried him to the cross and nailed him 
on the cross so that you could be forgiven of your sins and be transferred into the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who is God manifest in the flesh, who conquered sin and death in the flesh. And God is calling people forth right now to recognize and look upon him whom they, as it were, have pierced and allow their hearts to be pierced with what? With who God is. God, in the full expression of his, his being, is described as the Word of God. Jesus Christ is called the Word of God. And the Word of God is described in Hebrews 4.12. It says this, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, even to the very motives of the heart, and is a discerner of the intents and the motives of the heart. It exposes those things. When we see through that two-edged sword of the holiness of God, which is the integrity of his love, and the mercy of God that springs out of that holiness of God, ultimately revealed on the cross in Jesus Christ, when we see the greatness of the holiness of God and of his mercy and how much we need it, we cannot help but be pierced by that sword in our heart so that it breaks the hardness of our heart and rends the veil off our heart so that we see him for who he is, like Israel will see in the last days when as a nation she is converted and looks upon him whom they have pierced. In this passage in Zechariah 13, The Lord says that there's an unclean spirit that's going to pass out of the land in the last days. And it's also going, it's, it relates the false prophets to being part of this unclean spirit. And I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. There will be a total cleansing. And they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And we continue on in this passage of Scripture. And we read here that I will cause the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. How is it possible, from reading this at face value here in this, this verse 3, that if they have a son and he prophesies falsely because he's doing it out of an unclean spirit, that they will tell their very son that would be dear unto them, you're not going to live because we're going to put a sword right through you for doing what you just did. We will not tolerate this false, unclean spirit. What is this about? How do we see this? I first want to re read this particular verse in another translation called the SLT, which I'm going to read verse 2 to 3 on this. And it 
was in that day, says Jehovah of armies, I will cut off the names of the images from the land, and they shall be remembered no more. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it was, if a man shall yet prophesy, and his father and mother who begat him said to him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest falsehood in the name of Jehovah. And his father and his mother in begetting him thrust him through in his prophesying. It says here, and it was if a man shall yet prophesy. It's a past tense. It's saying it will be like, it will be, there will be such a relationship of love for purity in oneness with God that it would be as if, if their very son prophesied falsely out of this unclean spirit that was in the land, the, the very mother and father who begat them would consider the dearness of their son insignificant compared to the relationship of purity they have with God to the degree that the spirit of God that will not tolerate, it's a flaming fire of judgment against all that is corrupt, would literally come through them to destroy their son to put him to death. They would have, in other words, what it is saying here is that when this unclean spirit passes out of the land, there will be such a deep, intimate relationship that people have with God, such a hate for what is contrary to the love of God in its fullness and purity, that they would literally have the spirit of God that's dwelling in them come out like fire, or in some action, in this case, like putting a sword through someone. It's because there's such a loving, intimate relationship with God that there will not be the toleration for sin. There's a scripture that says, Thou, that you are anointed with the oil of gladness above your, thou hast hated unrighteousness and love righteousness. Therefore, I have anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. In other words, the anointing, the, the presence of God, the anointing speaks of the presence of God will be so strong to the degree that we are in conformity to what God hates and what God loves. And since God is love in its ultimate perfection, to think that he would come and suffer more than you, a mere creature, the creator of the universe, so that you could be reconciled to him. To think that there is a love that great and that we can come into such a union and conformity to that love that we can hate what God hates and love what God loves. See, there's nothing wrong with discrimination. Everyone discriminates. The question is whether the discrimination is onto life, is constructive onto life, or destructive onto greater and greater destruction. Whether the discrimination is righteous or unrighteous. And therein lies what lies what causes the anointing or the presence of God to increase in our lives. It is to the degree through the trials and the tribulations that we experience and come out of that we grow in a greater and greater love relationship with God that also is in conformity to hating what is contrary to love and loving what is in conformity to love. And in the last days, this will happen.
And it goes on here and it says this, And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophet shall be ashamed every one of his vision. When he had prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. Now this is being written in the context of the present time, probably somewhere around 500 B.C. or even possibly later, before Christ. And so at that time there were prophets, probably, that were trying to imitate being like Elijah who wore a rough garment. Wore a rough garment. But they were doing it out of self-righteousness and pride. Some of them just to have people look up to them and make them think that they were something or whatever. But in this day, those that would in any way present themselves as someone to be looked up to because they have some claim or trying to make themselves look like they have some great relationship with God. No. That will not even be able to exist in the body of Christ at that time because the terrors will already have been exposed from the wheat and would have been separated from the wheat. And so the prophets that are real prophets will have such great humility that they don't even want to share their vision. Because why? Because they know this deep union with God that births such great humility. It's the fear of God. The fear of God always is choosing to recognize God in the quality of his being for who he really is, which is that which is ultimately trustworthy. God is only, and the only quality of being that could possibly be ultimately trustworthy is this quality of being that has a love that has such integrity that it does not tolerate unholiness and is a love that at the same time without violating its integrity could take judgment upon himself for us. There is no love that comes close to this love. And to know a love relationship with the love of God, with God who is love, for the Word of God says God is love. There is nothing more fulfilling than being in the presence of God's love and fellowshipping with God. It consumes all the idols or the tendencies of deception towards idolatry within us when we come to him in humility, recognizing the holiness of God and our deserving of his judgment, out of which we recognize the greatness of God's mercy, out of which we recognize the greatness of God's love, so that we reach out from that state of rebellion like a clenched fist, or a seed that shell has not been broken open, and our hand opens up in surrender and cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then the other open hand of God's Spirit comes against that open hand, which represents our spirit and soul, so that our hand cannot close, and now we have a new divine nature, and a, or what represents being born again of the Spirit. And that is a state of a new creation, which is a, a relationship of trust in God. And the open hand represents a selfless state of trust in God. And that's only possible in what is revealed as ultimately trustworthy. And what is only possible to be ultimately trustworthy is God in his holiness and in his mercy, as I have shared. This is the ultimate perfection of love. 
and God is calling you to want to drop all the things in your life as a believer that tend towards being idolatrous and tend towards uncleanness. That means idleness. The Word of God commands us to redeem the time because the days are evil. Why are we wasting our time? We can do with every moment of our time things that are creative and fulfilling to the way God has uniquely made us that redeem the time instead of wasting time with the gods of amusement such as sports that so many people spend hours watching these days and get caught up with and they don't and they're robbed of a life of prayer. I'm not saying that it would be wrong if you need relaxation to, to do some kind of sport for exercise. But there are so many that these things are idols in their lives. And it says here that there will be this kind of humility and purity in the corporate gatherings around Christ and in us and our individual union with God at that time. And so we go on, and it's interesting what verse 5 says, But he shall say, I am no prophet. I am a husbandman. For man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thy hands? Then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now we know that that is true of Christ. In fact, the next verse, after this verse 5 and 6, is a prophecy about Christ. Being before his crucifixion, where he is forsaken by his friends. But here it is talking about those that have a genuine, deep, intimate relationship with God. They don't want to be known as anything. They don't want any names tagged on them, calling them a prophet. They want to be hidden and unknown. They just want God to have the glory because they have such a love relationship with God. They don't, they don't want anything but just God. They don't want people looking up to them. They want people looking up to God. So they don't want to be tagged with names like a prophet. And they experience such an identity with Christ that they can feel the wounds in their hands that were in the hands of Christ. So that it was it, it is as if people can see the wounds of Christ in their hands and feel the wounds of Christ in their hands. And when people ask them, what are those wounds in your hands? They answer and they say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. There is such an identity with Christ who was pierced upon which they have looked with their soul and seen God for the reality of who he is and received his atoning mercy and grace and repentance and forgiveness. That they are sharing, that they're experiencing what it was like for Christ to have his dearest friends reject him. They're experiencing identity with that because they were friends that wounded Christ in history. And let me tell you, any genuine prophet will experience rejection. And it's very painful because it usually comes from those that are dearest to you. I myself have experienced rejection from some of the ones that are so the most dear to me. I have in the past. And I've overcome it without becoming offended by it. 
because of the love of God, because I've recognized the mercy of God. Paul the Apostle said this. He had such a relationship with Christ that he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And this is describing such a union, a holy, pure, sinless life that they are living in union and fellowship with God, that they can experience the very identity of the rejection of Christ upon the cross. But it is also prophetic in speaking of Christ. Because the next verse goes on to explain that. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. This is speaking of Jesus Christ the Messiah. Against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. We know this is the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where they came to take Christ and the disciples were scattered from him. And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come. And so that prophecy was fulfilled. And then there's a big span of time towards the end of time. Many prophecies are like this. It's like you're looking at, on a, you're on a plane and there's a canyon. And you can't see the canyon in between. And then you see beyond the other side of the canyon. But you're not aware the canyon's there. And so then there's the scene going further on in time to the very end of time after this prophecy of the scattering of the disciples of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says, And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die. But the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call in my name, and I will hear them. And I will say, Oh, it is my people. And they shall say, The Lord is my God. This is where this incredible union happens when Israel as a nation looks on him whom they have pierced, and they finally realize when their military might is broken, which is what is described in Zechariah chapter 12. Their military might is broken and two-thirds of them look like they're going to be destroyed. I don't want it to happen. I pray it doesn't happen. But this is what this prophecy in Zechariah 12 in here shows. But when their military might is broken, they cry out to God, and God himself comes back. Jesus Christ stands on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives is prophesied in Zechariah 12, splits in half. Do you know they found the earthquake fault through the middle of the Mount of Olives in the last, I don't know, decade or so? I don't know exactly how long ago it is. There's the earthquake fault, and there's a time in the near future when Christ will return and he will stand on the Mount of Olives, and they will look on him whom the mountain is going to split in half, and there's going to be great geographical changes that are described there in, uh, I believe, Zechariah 12 and other parts. And they're going to be purified. They're going to go through a time of great trying. This is also described in the book of Daniel, which is a very prophetic book that there will be many that know the Lord and have understanding. And it says they, they, they will be put through trials and refined and made white. Because there will be so many nations converging against Israel, 
and there will be people that are betraying one another and making covenants that are false. And there will be major covenants made with the Antichrist and then broken and so on. All of this going on and they're all, and it prophesies in Daniel that those that remain to the very end, and it mentions the number of days, will actually come to this point where the Messiah comes on the Mount of Olives, the Antichrist is destroyed in the Millennial Kingdom, on the reign of Christ with the millions of saints will begin upon the earth. But here we see there's a remnant that will come forth that will be put through great trials and come to the point where they will call on his name and then he will reveal himself. He, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And they will have such a deep union and a marriage with their God that this will be the marriage, like the marriage of the bride with her husband. It will be glorious and it will result in the kingdom of God coming upon the earth and ruling upon the earth henceforth. And we know from Revelations 20, there will be one other time after the thousand years where Satan is loose for a little season so that those that I guess that were born during that time and didn't come to know God are attracted and drawn into his deception and destroyed. And then after that, the new Jerusalem comes upon the earth, which is a city that is 1,400 miles high by 1,400 miles square. An amazing scene. The marriage of God with his people. Heaven finally conquering the earth. And this is a wonderful message and a wonderful hope that you can enter into. You can find your destiny. You can be in that new Jerusalem that will come down upon the earth. You can be in the millennial reign of Christ, reigning with the saints. For it says if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. And any of those that are living a godly life, that's a life in conformity to who God is, will suffer persecution, even by those that claim to be Christians, even those that claim to be committed Christians and are self-righteous or whatever. But you can rejoice through every trial you grow into knowing a closer relationship in conformity to who God is as crystallized on the cross, where Christ cried out unto the, unto the Father and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He wanted the Father. He was initiating forgiveness upon their response to his initiation to show mercy to them that they could receive his forgiveness. It also says, Christ also said, if a brother sins against you 70 times 70, that if he repents, you're to forgive him. So it is contingent upon repentance, but it is our initiation first to forgive that allows their response for repentance. If he repent, forgive him. And we choose before they repent to forgive in order to initiate their response to repent so that they might be forgiven. My prayer is that you would be blessed by this message. And I'm asking for your support because I am about to come out with a book that is a template in detail for planting churches around the world that will conquer their nation, their city, and their community to plant local body of bodies of believers that will not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ in the body. 
When we enter into the genuine fear of God, man's ways will not get in the way of God bringing forth his bride. And this booklet is something that allows, in every detail, assemblies to have the government of God fully working in their assembly to bring his presence down so that they can conquer through his presence, their community, their city, their nation, so that their nation becomes a large nation of light within the nation of darkness. So that their nation is saved. This is the strategy that God wants for the last days. If you want to learn more about this, I don't have anything up on my website yet, but it's loverealize.com. That is loverealize.com. I will be finishing this book very soon. It's an in-depth outline and every detail of what should be in a local body of believers. God bless you and thank you for listening to this message.